there were two hunters in the woods, and they were going along, and as they were going along, they, they saw a bear. Has anybody encountered a bear in the woods? Raise your hand. I'm curious how many. Okay, so when I moved to North Carolina, I had no idea that there were bears around here. And we were driving um, down um, Halls Creek Road one day in the middle of the day, and a black bear just comes running through the field right next to the car. I could not believe it. Never seen one in person like that in the wild. And it was, uh, it was an experience. Uh, last, last month, as we were uh, making our way uh, to Ohio through the, the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia, uh, once again, 70 miles an hour down the interstate, and a black bear just came right. We had to slam on our brakes, and it ran right in front of us, right on the interstate. It was crazy. So anyway, if you've ever seen one in the wild, then you can relate to the two hunters who came along and saw, they saw a black bear in the woods, and it was so large that they just dropped their guns and took off, and one ran up a tree, and they say you're not supposed to do that, but that's what he did, and one ran into a nearby cave, and there they hid as the black bear just kind of made his way, and it ended up settling down right between the tree and the cave, and there it, it waited. Well, a few minutes went by, and the hunter that went into the cave came running out, but when he saw the bear, he stopped and hesitated and then turned around and ran back into the cave. A few minutes went by and the same thing happened. Ran out, saw the bear, hesitated, went back into the cave. This happened a third time. And the third time when the hunter comes out from the cave, the one in the tree says, what are you doing? He's going to get you. And the guy that was in the cave says, well, I know, but there's a bear in the cave too. Hardy har indeed, Carl. <laughs> well, the, the prophet Amos um, once described a similar situation to that regarding the, the fate of the unrighteous in the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord's judgment comes, Amos says in chapter 5, verse 19, the unrighteous will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house, and he's bitten by a snake. It's, a, it's an expression that means what? Well, it means there will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to hide from the great and terrible day of the Lord. And our final passage from 1 Samuel this morning will be in Chapter 30, if you grabbed a guest Bible, which by the way, those are gift Bibles. If you uh, don't have a Bible or know someone who doesn't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that for yourself or to give to somebody. Uh, those Bibles located there in the back where you'll put your communication cards later this morning. will be on page 249 if you happen to grab one of those. In the, the, the last chapter of this sermon series, it's not the last chapter of 1 Samuel, but it's the last one we're going to have time to get to. We've been here for a number of weeks. I hope you have uh, appreciated this journey through this Old Testament book. It's the first time I've preached through this book before, so it's been refreshing and encouraging to my heart, and I hope it has been to your heart as well. But in our final passage here in chapter 30, David, who is God's anointed, the, the righteous one in, in the text here, experiences his own series of unfortunate events. Last week, we left him in a tight spot. You might recall that. And I'd like to say that a couple chapters later, things have gotten better for our, our, our good friend David, but unfortunately they haven't. As soon as he escapes one problem, he finds himself in another problem. And this has been the trend really throughout 1 Samuel, beginning around the time that 
uh, David has really emerged onto the scene about halfway through this book. Every time that he he goes through a, a hardship, another one is just waiting him, waiting for him right on the other end. He escapes from Saul, only to find himself running from the Philistines. And then he, he runs from the Philistines, only to find himself escaping again from Saul. From Ramah to Nob to Gath, from the, the cave of Adullam to the hill country of Ziph, over and over again, chapter after chapter, there is no true rest for David. But he's the righteous man, right? He's the one that is said it's, he, he's after, the one after God's own heart. He's, he's the one that God's favor has rest upon. God's calling has been placed upon. And yet, his experience is like the man, repeatedly running from the lion, only to be met by a bear. And he cannot seem to catch a break. That impossible situation we referred to back in uh, chapter, actually chapter 27, uh, the other week, last week, um, the, the resolution to that was found in chapter 29, and, and we're, we're hopeful for David that finally he's going to get that, that break that he has so well deserved. And yet, we come to chapter 30 and find that as he returns home, the Amalekites have raided the village, and they've burnt it to the ground, and they've taken all the plunder, including all the wives and children of David and his, his band of followers. We're told there in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 30, when David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. And as if that wasn't enough for David, we're told in the beginning of verse 6, I'm sorry, I lost, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter here. We're told in the beginning of verse 6, David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began to talk of stoning him. How would you like to be in David's position at this point? To come home in need of a much-deserved break from all the calamity and all the challenges and all the complexities and all the suffering, only to find that your house and your village has been burnt to the ground and those you love most have been taken captive. The reader wonders, why is it that the righteous... Even the one called God's anointed, why do they suffer so much? God has chosen David. God has revealed his will for David. God has made promises to David. And rather than those things spelling the end of David's trouble, in many ways, those things have spelled the beginning of David's troubles. I mean, when we first found David, he, he seemed quite content out in the fields, tending his father's sheep. There were challenges to be found there for sure, but he seemed quite capable to, to deal with those challenges as they came. And, and you wonder as he enters into the fullness of, of God's call upon his life and seeks to follow Yahweh and, and be obedient to his word and then begins encountering trouble after trouble and suffering upon suffering, you almost wonder if he was tempted at times to say, you know, this isn't really what I signed up for. It's not what I had in mind. And that's particularly relevant, I believe, today for those who were baptized this morning. Because the Christian life, in a lot of ways, can be kind of like that. We come to Jesus, where there's a, there's a high of this. This is a mountaintop experience this morning when, when we stand in front of the brothers and sisters of Christ and we confess our, our, our faith in the Lord and we, we, we go 
with Christ into his death and come with Christ out, out in his resurrection. And there's this, this joy that pervades the room and we, we all feel it. And, we, and, and those of us who, who've already been baptized remember our own baptism and we remember what Christ has done for us. And there's this temptation to feel like I've entered into a, a new sort of carefree sort of life. But on the contrary, it's not going to be like that. We don't get to live carefree in this world. In fact, oftentimes the disciples of Jesus encounter hardships that he or she probably never would have encountered otherwise. There's a whole new set of hardships that, that weren't there for you before when you were living in sin, when you were living like the world. There's, there's a whole new world of, of trouble in, in store for you just because you bear the name of Jesus and yes, we're told to, to count the costs as we weigh whether or not we want to follow the Lord. But even those who have done that and enter into the life of discipleship will find very quickly that we didn't know what all the costs really actually were. And so, each step along the journey of faith, we find, has its own share of trials. At times, life can feel a little bit like what uh, the character, uh, they call her Granny, but those of you who've seen the, the series Downton Abbey, you know she's the Dowager Countess. Um, the, the, the granny figure one time made the statement that I, that I heard where she says this. This is her summary of life. All of life is a series of problems that we must try to solve. First one, then the next, then the next, then we die. How's that for a, a positive, inspiring view of life? Well, there's a temptation at times to feel that way, isn't there? We face a hardship, a trial, we, we persevere through it, we, we look to God, we look to our church, we look to our friends, our family, we make it through, we feel like we can take a breath, only to find there's another one waiting for us right there. We've escaped the lion to find a bear. We hear the words of Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, that say, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning, but we wonder, well, how far off is that morning truly? And why are there just so many weeping nights in the Christian life? Look, I don't, I don't presume to have an an, a perfect answer to those questions. I mean, anytime we come to a passage like this, we're, we're faced with what uh, philosophy calls the problem of evil, and we have to account for how God can be all good and all powerful and all knowing, and yet evil still exists in the world. And there's great Christian answers to that. And I believe that the Christian worldview is the only one that has sufficient answers to those questions. But I'm not going to sit here and presume to have some simple, easy, perfect, exhaustive answer for all of the questions that arise from this dilemma. And I think those who say they do have the simple, easy, perfect answers are either liars or fools. There is no simple answer. And I wouldn't presume to know it. But what I can tell you is what happens next. What I can tell you is what the scriptures say next. When life comes at you fast, what does the righteous one do? Well, look in, look in verse 6. I read the first half of verse 6. Look at the second half of it. But David found strength in the Lord his God. No magic formulas. No easy answers. J David wasn't 
given some sort of quick fix where he's extracted out of the, the hardships when the going got tough. No, instead, we're told that David found strength amidst the hardship in the Lord, his God. And I'm particularly caught up there in the intimacy of that wording. David knows Yahweh. He knows him personally. And because he knows him personally, he knows his heart. He knows his character. He knows his person. And because he knows who Yahweh is, he can trust in Yahweh. Even when he had lost everything, even when that which mattered to him most had been stolen from him, even when those who, who had been by his side through thick and through thin, who had pledged loyalty to him, fidelity to him, I will follow you, David, to the ends of the earth, even when they themselves are beginning to turn their backs on their leader and threatening to put him to death, what does David do? Well, he grieves and I appreciate the, the realistic perspective that the scriptures give us about suffering in the life of the righteous. Any Christian person that comes along or someone who claims to know something about these topics and says to you, why are you upset? Why are you crying? Don't you have faith? They do not have the word of God or your best interest in heart. There is a reality to suffering in this life and grieving is God's the mechanism that God has given us to, to process and deal with hardships. And it's okay that you grieve. It is healthy and right and godly that you grieve. But what does David do in his grief? He grieves, but then he allows his grief to drive him to God. He is still, after all, the God who speaks. He is still, after all, the God who makes promises. And as, as he turns to this God, the one that he knows, the one whose heart and character he loves and has come to trust and depend upon, he draws strength from the presence of Yahweh. And as he does that, he hears another promise there in verse, um, verse 8, where God himself says, you will surely recover everything that was taken from you. I love the promise of God. Now, was everything restored in an instant? Well, no. Could God have done that? Yes. With God, all things are possible. He's omnipotent. There's no limit to his power, his might, his strength. God could have restored everything. He could have, he didn't even have to snap a finger. He could have willed it, and it would have happened in the blink of an eye. But that's not what happens. There's, there's a process that in the, the goodness of the all-powerful God, in the, the will of, of the one who's all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, who has purposes beyond what, what David could see in the moment, his will is that there's something else has to take place. It's not just enough that God makes the promise. God wants David to enter into the realization of that promise in his life. And so, David, having no idea how God will make good on the promise, is faced with a choice. And it's the same choice 
that in some form or fashion, everyone in here at some point in their journey of faith has been faced with. Will I, will I trust in the presence and in the, the promises and in the power and in the word of God? Or will I go my own way? I mean, isn't that the, really, when you boil the whole book of 1 Samuel down, isn't that the fundamental difference between Saul and David? You know, when, when Saul is faced with an impossible situation, when Saul is faced with, with hardship and, and doubt and uncertainty, we're told Saul had fear. So David's driven by his grief and his confidence in God. What's Saul driven by? He's driven by his fear. He's driven by the, the need to preserve himself, the need to find answers on his own, even if it means manipulating and, and twisting God's arm. God, give me the answer that I need so that I can be preserved. There, there's just a, a, a fundamental different, a per, difference of perspective between these two men. One turns to Yahweh, one turns to his own way. David consults a witch. I'm sorry, Saul consults a witch. <laughs> David consults the Lord, and he trusts in the sovereign providence of God. He believes that the things that are about to happen in his life are going to go according to, to the, the plan and purposes of Yahweh. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. He doesn't know where the answers are going to come from. And it's a really interesting, interesting point in the text that he's given this promise from God, but, but then he, he and his group just, they set out, and they seemingly have no idea where to even go. It doesn't say where they're going. And as the, the story progresses, if we had time, we'd read the whole, it's a lengthy story, but as the story progresses, we'd see that, that they need help along the way. They don't know exactly where these Amalekite raiders have gone. And so they set out anyway. They, they're trusting in God. They're, they're banking on his promises. They're, they believe that he's present and that he's going to fulfill his promises, but they don't know how. And yet they trust and obey anyway. Some can't even make it on the journey. Apparently it's a hard enough journey that at least 200 of his 600 men, they can't even continue on. They're so exhausted. They're so worn out. They're so defeated that they, that they can't go any further. And so without any sense of real direction and with people dropping, his friends dropping like flies left and right, we're told in verse 11 that they just happened to come upon a total random stranger walking out in the middle of some field who just so happens to know exactly where David and his men need to go. Now let me ask you a question. Do you view what happens there in verse 11 and following as a coincidence? Are there, think with me for a second on this. Are there really any true coincidences in the life of the believer? Now, listen, don't hear me wrong. I'm not suggesting some sort of you know, fatalistic worldview right? The fatalism being that, that idea that, that all events in history have been predetermined and are therefore inevitable. I'm not saying that. I'm not preaching fatalism here. I'm not even suggesting that there are no secondary causes in the world. Of course, there's more than just God's will at work in the world. The scriptures are very clear that, that, 
that creation is filled with free moral agents who are permitted to generate secondary causes. So absolutely, the things that you do, the things that people do in the world, are, they are done of their own volition. So we're, we reject fatalism, we reject predeterminism. And yet, somehow, you and I know by faith that God is, is, is always at work. He's, a, he's present in every circumstance. He's, he's not the, the primary agent behind all that happens, but he's the, he's the one who is superintending all that's going on in his creation. And he's doing it in such a way as to bring about his intended ends. You and I know that there are no true coincidences with a God who is in complete control and yet somehow never overrides a person's will because he always acts according to his nature. He's not going to step in and override a will to carry out his purposes. No, he's able to carry out his plans and purposes with other wills. And sure enough, as David follows this God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, who permits other wills and yet is still in complete control, David comes to experience the providential purposes of God fulfilled perfectly. Wasn't in a snap of a finger. It required stepping out in faith. And it was an exhausting step of faith. We know 200 of the men couldn't make it. But David, as he walks in trusting obedience, discovers that like all of God's promises, this one here was fulfilled perfectly. The man that they found, the random guy just wandering through some field, well, it just so happens he knew exactly where those Amalekite raiders were, enabling David and his men to attack them under cover of darkness, defeat them, and then we're told in verses 18 and 19 of our text here, David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. Without God, friends, the most hopeless situations are only ever that. But with God, the most hopeless situations become divine demonstrations of his power and of his goodness and of his faithfulness. You see, not only did David recover everything that had been plundered, but David was able to take the plunder back, that which was stolen and that which the Amalekites had, and, he, and, and what he had was then multiplied. And he was able to take the plunder and he was able to distribute it, not just among his men but that were with him, but among the men that weren't with him. And then he was able to go even beyond that. He was able to share it with, with the, the elders of, of Judah that were his friends. And he was able to distribute the goods among all the villages that he and his men had visited. Was David, was David able to be a blessing to be the people beyond his sphere of influence before the hardship came? Not like that he wasn't. It was through the hardship that not only David was able to experience the providential power and purposes of God, but it was through the hardship that, that the, the plunder was multiplied. 
And David was then able to be a blessing, not just to his, his people, but beyond. God's providence is such that the greater good always results from his permission of evil. The whole community grew stronger and closer as a result. And you and I can debate this. And there's some of you, some of you are debaters. And I, I love the debating mind. I have, a, I have a debating mind at times too. I think I used to be more interested in it once upon a time than I am now. I'll be honest with you, debating just makes me tired. <laughs> I'm always tired anyway, and debating just makes me tireder. I, I like discussing theological issues, but you know, the, or political issues or whatever the issues are, but I've just gotten tired of debating. I don't know. But we can debate it. We can debate the problem of evil. We can debate how God's sovereign will makes room for other wills. We can discuss how God knows the future and yet does, his foreknowledge doesn't compel it to happen. We can, we can discuss these things and it's, there's a place and a venue for that. But at the end of the day, the question is not whether we exhaustively understand all the philosophical dilemma or we can have a perfect cookie-cutter answer to all the problems. That's not what matters. At the end of the day, the question is whether we will trust God when the going gets tough. That's what my heart is concerned with in your lives and in my life this morning. Will you trust God when the going gets tough? Even when you don't have all the answers. Even when you cannot account philosophically for all the dilemmas. David could have gotten bogged down in the philosophical problems of what happened in his life. He could have turned his own way. But instead, he, he shows us what the righteous do. We acknowledge the, the suffering. We grieve through the suffering. But in that, we turn to God. He didn't turn to the official creedal statement of Israel. No, he turned to Yahweh, his God. And that is the only right response for the righteous when life comes at you fast. And so, church, what will you do? What about you? Where will you turn when the going gets tough? Well, the scriptures tell us that, that we who suffer, and even when we suffer in a very unfair, unjust sort of way, we can turn to another who suffered, who suffered unfairly, who was the, the ultimate recipient of injustice, the one who trusted and obeyed to the very end, even when he was betrayed by everyone in his life. And he was not only pursued by the lion and the bear, but he was struck by the snake. But such is the providence of God that the faithful suffering of God's anointed one, oh, it resulted in the salvation of all the world. The same things we see present in David's life are magnified and extended so far beyond what we find in this text here in Christ. He has secured once and for all the promised morning of Psalm Chapter 30, verse 5. So that those of us who look to him and to his word, we can know with confidence that a day is coming when joy will dawn forever. And until that day comes, 
He has shared the plunder of his victory with you and me, his people. We know from Ephesians chapter 4, which is a quote from Psalm chapter uh, 68, it says, when he ascended to the heights, so this is he's died, he's buried, he descended into the depths, but then he rose again and ascended to the heights. And when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Gifts, the apostle goes on to say, for you and for me that result in the unity, in the wholeness, in the maturity of the body. He not only provides for me, he's providing for us. Gifts for his church as a result of his suffering. His purpose is always taken into account our individual lives, but they also always have the greater things in mind than our own little world. His purposes are about his world and his kingdom, one that is coming to earth as it is in heaven. And so, whether you are at the beginning of your journey of faith or perhaps towards the end of your journey of faith, the exhortation for the people of God from 1 Samuel today is, yes, grieve amidst the suffering and the hardship that you'll face in this world. In this world, you'll have many troubles, some of which you never would have had if you kept choosing your own way. But because you followed Jesus, you've invited a whole new world of hardship into your life. Face that. Embrace it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, we're told in the Beatitudes. For the sake of of righteousness, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of what is right and good and true, you will be persecuted for that in this world. But you will be blessed for it. And you'll be a blessing to those around you because of it. So grieve, but then choose to let that grief drive you to Jesus. The Jesus we're told on that sign next door that never fails. He never fails. Jesus never fails. So when life comes at you fast, try him. Amen? Amen. Pastor Jeff? Lord, we thank you for, uh, for this very full morning, full of opportunities to witness firsthand just how good you are to your people. Lord, there's not a single person here that is claiming credit, that, is, that wants the, the spotlight to be on them, that wants to be praised in any sort of way for any of the good things that are going on in this church. Lord, it is all because of you. It's all because of your goodness. It's all due to your favor. It's all according to your power. And it's just another example of how your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are so much higher and better than our thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this morning to encourage and comfort your people. That we would know that God is still at work, that you are still present, that you still speak, that you still make and keep your promises. And you have promised, Jesus, to never leave or forsake us. So, Lord, comfort the one going through hardship right now, the one that's facing 
a broken, fractured relationship, the one who's facing economic trouble, the one who has cancer or some sort of disease or some sort of, some sort of handicap or debilitating factor in their life or those who feel aimless, those who feel lonely, those who are struggling to have hope. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them even now with the comfort of your Spirit's presence, that they would come to know you in a deeper way, that they would learn how to to turn to you in their suffering and in their grief, that they would be strengthened in Yahweh, their God, and that through it, Lord, you would complete your, your plans and purposes for them and for your church and for the world and that you would be glorified through it all. Lord, may it be so, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.